150 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 8th of November 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Ahoy, hoy. And Will. Hello. Yes, no Graham, he's gone on holiday by mistake, so you'll have to just put up with the three of us this week. Let's do the news then, and we've got a few bits of Raspberry Pi news. The first one is there is a new Pi Zero 2W for $15. I've never had one of these Pi Zeros. Explain to me if you have. It's like a smaller Pi with fewer ports. Why would I want that then? I want all the ports. It depends what you're doing with it. I, I find for some sort of basic server tasks or basic daemon tasks, just something to run a script on, something to do something with some work on, it's ideal. It's super cheap, so you can dot them around all over the place. For example, if you wanted to make a Bluetooth relay station, so something that can talk to a Bluetooth device and then query it and then send that data on across Wi-Fi to something else, then this is perfect for that. So I have, or rather had, a whole load of Bluetooth radiator valves around my house, and the range on those was really bad. So I would put a Raspberry Pi Zero W somewhere near one, and then it could talk to sort of, well, three or four, and then relay that information back. And for the, the cost of them and the, the ease of use, because it's full-blown Linux, you can just drop them around the place. And so for running a, a low-intensity task, I say low-intensity, you've still got a 1 gigahertz processor and 512 meg of RAM. You know, it's perfectly capable of running quite a lot, and they're dirt cheap. They're almost disposable. It sounds like I can simply get rid of this time clock and replace it with this 16-blade server that can run cron jobs. <laughs> but this new 02W is significantly more powerful than the old one, because the old one was pretty much a Raspberry Pi 1 in a smaller form factor, whereas this is pretty much a 3, but with less RAM and a slightly downclocked CPU. 3 is pretty powerful, to be honest. It was kind of like... The only realistic speed pie, I think, unless you're doing something really, really small. Yeah, I think it was a real watershed moment when that 3 came out. It was, okay, this has really arrived at 64-bit. It's a lot more powerful and can run a desktop, for example, without it being just painful. Obviously, the 4 and the 400 are better, but I think you can just about have a desktop. And that's really saying something, isn't it? If you can run a desktop on it, if it's headless then you can do an awful lot with it. Yeah, I've seen the the new camera module attached to one of these in one of their pictures there. And it looks quite cool, actually, that where you think they can do all the extra processing on that for like OpenCV and things. Uh, and that, that, that sounds really interesting, that. You can certainly do real work with the four cores now. It makes a really significant improvement to throughput. And I found even with uh, SD card access, things felt, a lot smoother just you know reading and writing off the off the card felt faster on this thing the only slightly frustrating thing is that it's only got 512 mega ram i would love a gig on there it would have been amazing but the price has got to be kept low and so you get 512 meg but it's yeah it's great you can do real work on it they're super cheap super reliable you've got a full blown linux system it's great and i can imagine use cases like remote sessions, you know, logging into a VNC server or something like that. This would be amazing and so cheap. Yeah, Graham's got one for his 3D printer. It's a shame he's not here to tell us about it, but it means that he can have a, a little web server running on that, he told us, rather than with the old Zero W that was just not beefy enough. And we can link to an article on Hackaday that says the new Zero 2W is the most efficient 
pi that there is. Because although the original Zero W used a lot less power, it was a lot less powerful. So you're getting the almost three-ish power, but you're also using a lot less juice. So it's pretty impressive all around, really. Yeah, really is. The only problem is trying to get hold of one. Yeah. And you got one. Is that right? Yeah, they limited you to only buying one. And I got an email from Pi Hut, I think, at like eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and I jumped straight on and ordered one. And it was here next day. Uh, and then, of course, immediately went out of stock. Right. And have you actually put it into service yet, or is it just sitting there? No, it's in the cupboard uh, along with all the other ones. Yeah, as is the way. <laughs> I did install Raspberry Pi OS onto it, onto a fresh SD card, just to kick the tyres and, and see how it felt. And it was super impressive. I haven't found a job for it yet, but when I do, I'll pull it out the bag and, and put it in. Yeah, there's also official Ubuntu server support for it. Not 20.04 yet, but 21.10 is supported. So it'd be interesting to see how well that runs. But just today, as we record, they've released a new version of Raspberry Pi OS based on Debian Bullseye, which is actually quite different because they've now upgraded to GTK3 rather than GTK2, and they're using Mutter instead of Openbox as the window manager. It's not LXDE anymore. It is some fork, uh, Franken, distro, whatever you want to call it. It's not just straight up LXDE. I mean, it sort of hasn't been for a while, but now they've really moved away from that. And I did try it out, and it was a bit buggy, I'm afraid. But that's the price of progress, I think. Yeah, I had to look through that press release or blog post, whatever you call it, um, and it was very desktop-centric, which, of course, it would be. But I I don't know. I don't use, I don't look on Raspberry Pis. I still don't look on Raspberry Pis as being a desktop computer. I, I guess I've got a desktop computer for that sort of thing. The most exciting thing to me for Bullseye is the upgrade to Python 3.9392. The previous version, the Buster-based release, was getting a bit long in the tooth with Python. Um, Some of the new features were missing, and now they will be in there by default, and I will stop having to hack around them. So that's very good news for me. Bad news for you, Phelan, though, eh? Hey, I'm on to Python 3 now-ish, sort of. <laughs> are you sure that all your scripts are going to work? No, I'm not sure all of them are, but that's what you call um, <laughs> consultancy <laughs> fees. That's it. Do you guys use a Raspberry Pi as a desktop machine at all? No. No, not a chance. No, I, I use loads of them, mind you. I think I use about seven in the house. I was counting them the other day, but never as a desktop machine. Mind you, I don't know, would you call a Kodi box for the TV a desktop machine? I'm not sure. That feels like something that me and the Linux After Dark chaps should talk about soon. Hmm, maybe that's already recorded and coming this Friday about what exactly is desktop Linux. But it's funny, you know, just before this 02W was announced, I actually got fed up with my Raspberry Pi 3, which was acting as a sort of second backup server because I thought it would be a good idea to set up in a different location a Pi attached to a hard drive that I can pull backups to, just in case, you know. And I just got pissed off with the Pi. I can't even remember what it was, but I just thought, I've had enough of this. I'm going to use an x86 machine. So I dug out a Chromebook. Turns out that that C720 has got its own problem, so I'm going to use a different x86 box. (laughs) But nevertheless, the Pi was doing okay, but... You can't beat an x86 box. 
Well, it's interesting you say that because about two weeks ago, I replaced the SD card in my Pi 4, which runs my routing and firewall and DNS server and smart home and web server and all that stuff. Uh, replaced the SD card with a USB 3 connected SSD and configured it to boot off of USB. And it's absolutely transformed the Pi. It is so fast now. I'm getting like 200 megabits um, throughput on the, on the disk. It feels like a real computer. So so I would definitely recommend giving that a go. It really makes it feel fast and solid and reliable. And I, I'm not now relying on a, a, a dodgy SD card for my sort of primary server. So definitely give it a go. Just a point to note, though, it has to be an SSD, I'm pretty sure, because I've tried that with a spin and rust disk for my CCTV, and I don't think it disk spins up quick enough before the timeout in the BIOS of the Pi just says not nah, this isn't happening and then skips on and then doesn't boot so i have a boot sd card which is literally just a boot partition with all the kernels and stuff and then that mounts the rest of the root file system off the spin and rust drive and that gives it enough time to work but yeah no i tried you sent me a link to to try a few things but i actually had all those latest versions of the firmware and uh, I, I just think there's a, a i don't know is it three seconds or something like that it's just not fast enough to do it it needs a sleep 10 and and somewhere. Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay, this is a sponsored job advert for Giant Swarm. Are SRE, Kubernetes, and remote buzzwords that you love to hear? If so, Giant Swarm could be the next company you join. Giant Swarm offers Kubernetes as a service to international enterprise customers, as well as helping with the rest of the cloud native journey while having a leading role in the open source community. Fully remote since 2014, Giant Swarm is looking for site reliability engineers to keep its infrastructure operational and healthy and push the product forward as part of a cross-functional team. If you have experience administering Kubernetes as well as fluency in Go, then you might be one of Giant Swarm's next SREs. If you don't think you fit that role, don't worry. Giant Swarm hires humans, not job descriptions, and there are loads of other open positions. For all the details, check out giantswarm.io slash careers. And as if by magic, and nothing to do with daylight savings times fucking up, we're also now joined by Jim Salter. Hi, everybody. Hey. So, Nat Friedman is leaving GitHub. This is alarming, I think. Not at all questionable. So after three years, he is standing down, and he's going to become Chairman Emeritus, which just is a ceremonial you know, title. It doesn't really mean anything. And he's going to be replaced by Thomas Dumker, I think that's how you say it, who will be directly reporting to Julia Lewison. Julia is reportedly the person at Microsoft who almost pulled the hot reload feature out of .NET, but then did a U-turn at the last minute and upset the community. She is now the president of Microsoft's developer division, and therefore Thomas's boss. So this is not just a simple replacement. This is a restructuring that has got quite a lot of people worried. I don't know how super worried I am, honestly. I mean, you know, there's so many people have been calling for a, I guess for lack of a better word, you know, defanging the the massive centralization of GitHub and saying, you know, we need to be dispersing more projects out to like GitLab and Bitbucket and whatever. It's not like there's any shortage of repositories. I mean, it, it would suck if, GitHub turned awful and bad and overly corporate or whatever, but I don't think it would be the end of the world. I guess the only thing is the fact that they've now swooped in and got all of the users, you know, most of them, let's be realistic, use GitHub. 
as opposed to any of the other ones. And it's very hard to get people out of that. Once they're out, they go, oh, I don't like the way it's going. You know, it's a bit of a small amount of pain and ah, sure, I'm here anyway. I'll just do it. And then, you know, they've already got those developers on board. So yeah, maybe it's too late. I think it's still a case of like, there's no guarantee that this restructuring is just going to suddenly make GitHub suck. If it doesn't make GitHub suck, who cares? If it does make GitHub suck, well, we can go do something else. Yeah, I agree. I I don't really know where the bad news in this story goes. Like, is it that there will be no more free hosting for open source projects? Will it be that it's a now you you know you've got to pay money to get access to certain features? Well, as Jim says, there's plenty of alternatives. So I'm not concerned for GitHub. Is there though plenty of alternatives though? That's the problem. I'm not entirely sure there's a comparable alternative to them like gitlab might talk about game and i think it's a great product but i don't think everybody who's using github for an open source project could just waltz right in there and expect it not to fall over because github has added quite a lot of features like the sponsors and all sorts of stuff that have appealed to a lot of developers and that's why they are the name you know the number one sure but it's really hard to speak intelligibly about this because we're still just kind of waving our hands in the air with this undefined idea that maybe things will be bad and we don't know how or if. So we can't really talk about what the, you know, the game plan to react to it would be either. Phelan raises the reasonable point that everybody can't leave GitHub overnight and go to GitLab and not expect GitLab's infrastructure to fall over. But realistically, that's not how it would happen either. I mean, you know, there's going to be a certain number of people that stay on GitHub no matter what, especially, you know, people who aren't particularly sensitive to FOSS issues. A lot goes on in GitHub that isn't really proper open source these days, and they're unlikely to have a reason to leave. Out of the the ideological people who might leave, again, you know, why would they? I mean, we've been through all this before. When Microsoft first purchased GitHub, everybody's like, well, that's it for GitHub. You know, it's, it's gone now. <laughs> but they've been excellent stewards of it for years now. It's actually less costly to use GitHub now than it was when I originally signed on. Like before Microsoft bought it, I actually purchased a private repo at 10 bucks a month, not because I had any need for a private repo, but, you know, just to try to be the customer and and not the product. But, you know, then Microsoft took over and they're like, hey, private repos are free too. Wee! You know, if you're not an enterprise, they're not really trying to extract money from you. So, I think it's too early to assume that a restructure means that horrible things are going to happen at GitHub. But you raise a good point there. They want your code to be the product, or at least part of their product with that co-pilot thing. And that's just one example. There could potentially be other stuff like that coming along. And it felt like Nat was the good guy. He was one of us inside there. Whereas now it's just, uh, okay, his replacement, Thomas, is like, he seems like a good open source guy, but who knows? All right, so let's say that Copilot actually ends up deriving a ton of value from the open source data sets. They're still open source, right? We can still do the same stuff with it. I don't think that that's really the enormous bear that it's been made out to be either. Ultimately, the entire human race gets the benefit, whatever it might be. Um, and we still haven't established what the real value is of using open source code to train AIs to produce, you know, reasonable code. It's not like you're not going to be able to use AI tools to generate more open source code yourself. You can, 
And it's not like the majority of code on GitHub is super high quality anyway, let's be honest about it. I've been doing that on purpose. I'm trolling them. It's a long game. <laughs> yeah, if there's anything that I would want to get back from Microsoft, assuming that whole you know co-pilot thing turns out to be the enormous blessing it claims to be, if it really derives all that value specifically from the open source code on GitHub, then the thing I really want out from Microsoft is like, how they trained the filters to find the high quality code to train on and ignore the garbage. <laughs> that sounds like something truly valuable. And I want a piece of that pie. Mm. Dev equals not Phelan. <laughs> <laughs> on to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support if you want to join those people. And remember for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert free RSS feed. And that contains Late Night Linux, Late Night Linux Extra, and Linux After Dark. And do check out Late Night Linux Extra 34. I had Martin Wimpress on to talk about Docker Slim and Slim AI. That was really good because uh, like, I will put my hand up and say I'm not really massively keen on containers, but all of the things that he brought up about the fact that developers making containers in the first place and all the spuriously out-of-date libraries that they may have in there, uh, essentially that software seems to get rid of them all. So it actually sounds like quite a good project. Worth a listen. Definitely, especially if you want to know what he's been up to since he left Canonical. And I mentioned Linux After Dark. Check it out, linuxafterdark.net. New episode coming on Friday. And if you want to get in contact with us, latenightlinux.com slash contact. But email, email, email. That's the best way to get on the show. Show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash latenightlinux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. So are you all sitting here staring at your new purple Firefox then? Purple Firefox what now? What, when you got the update, you didn't go in and change the colors to cool purple and pink and all sorts then? I didn't even know that was an option. I hadn't actually seen it yet because, uh, you know, cards on the table. I use Firefox on mobile, but on my desktop, I'm still mostly a Chrome user. But I just now fired it up and uh, I did get the update automatically because I have unattended upgrades installed like, you know, a grown up. And uh, I got this splash screen right now, which I assume is for what you're talking about. And it says, life in color, vibrant new colorways available for a limited time. And I'm like, wait, available for a limited time? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> what? I feel so left out. What is this? Have you just not restarted Firefox for three weeks, Phelan? No, it's been totally restarted all the time. It 
came in an update now. Oh, I'm, I feel left out now. Clearly, there's a fucking user ID string that they're looking for. I said, nope, none for you. Phelan, I don't think you're left out, bud. I think you saw that splash thing that said explore colorways or not now. And like, I don't think your cerebrum even engaged. The lizard brain was like, yep, not now. That's the option for me. What does it do? It just changes your theme to Ooh. a bunch of different potential colors. And I did it on a test machine first to see what it was like and picked some funky purple or whatever. And then every other machine since has just been like, not now. (laughs) (laughs) But supposedly there's big performance improvements as well. Well, yeah. I mean, the unload page is quite smart, but I have been using a plugin that I think is superior and that's simple tab groups. And that has been unloading various tabs as it goes along in the same way that this thing is meant to do. So I have separate groups that when I switch between them, unloads all that stuff out before. I don't know what way they were doing that, but uh, you definitely see the memory improvement when you're using it. I can't hear you over the sound of me exploring colorways. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So you get this palette of colors to click when you tell it that you're ready to explore colorways, but uh, there's orange, yellow, uh, sort of a rose, green, lavender, and gray But when you click one, like when you click orange, it doesn't say orange. It says abstract. And then you have the choices of soft, balanced, or bold. Oh, good God. And uh, purple is graffiti, soft, balanced, or bold. It's it's all kind of just like, I I think we can add this to the category of, you know, what the hell is Mozilla spending its money on? (laughs) (laughs) But there's a piece on the register from a few days ago talking about Waterfox, which is a fork of Firefox. And it mentions a few other forks as well. And Liam, who wrote this, really makes a decent case, I think, that Mozilla has made some poor decisions and should look at the forks that have happened and maybe correct course a little bit. Well, it's open source software, isn't it? I mean, you should always be looking at the forks. Anytime somebody forks your software, assuming you have the time to, you should absolutely be looking at that and saying, why did they fork it and what did they do? And is that cool? Should I do that? I mean, it's just kind of how FOSS works. Okay, something that's got people a bit worried in the Red Hat camp is an internal email that leaked from Timothy Kramer, the SVP of Software Engineering, which essentially said that any new devs that get hired are not going to be senior level. They're going to be associate software engineer or just software engineer. And so people have gone a bit crazy about this saying, ah, this is IBM wanting to tighten the purse strings and not let Red Hat hire the best people. And it's it's terrible, terrible news. That sounds pretty sweet to me. They're not going to say, I've worked at a lot of places that don't promote from within. Like if you want a senior position, you're going to have to leave the freaking company and come back. Saying you can't hire seniors in directly basically just means you're talking about a culture of, you know, actually promoting your own best and brightest. I, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I really like Jim's point of view here that it will be good for the company to bring in fresh talent. It will be good for university leavers, newly qualified people, people who want to get into the opportunity of working at Red Hat will now have that opportunity. Whereas previously, if they were only hiring seniors, and I don't believe that they were, but if they were looking at the more experienced end of the market, you're going to get a very narrow demographic of people applying for those jobs people that have been around for 20 years people that learned computer science 20 years ago at university by saying that we're going to stop hiring seniors 
and we're going to start hiring more junior people, then I think that you open yourself up to a much wider pool of people. I was feeling these sort of ad hominem attacks there, the 20 years in IT. I was like, whoa, 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 calm <laughs> down there. But uh, Red Hat, one billion business in the last business period. I don't know what it was, but it was quarter. 90, quarter was it quarter? Okay, 90% of IBM's target, yet they are obviously not spending this on new staff hires for Red Hat, yet they are carrying IBM. It sounds awfully like that rumor that you hear where people say IBM is a IT company run by accountants. And I hope that's not the case for Red Hat because it's going to die a horrible death otherwise. I think it'll be IBM that dies the horrible death here. I think that IBM are really struggling. Their whole cloud offering is seen as old fashioned and stuck in the mud. And Red Hat is still a power to be reckoned with. I think it'll be IBM who disappear and Red Hat are the only thing that's left of that smoking mess. Yeah, but I mean, the only problem is that they're now attached to that anchor that's dragging them down. And hopefully that is not the case uh, because they do a lot of good work and it would be a shame that they start getting all those projects cut because that's not seen as a clear black and white bottom entry line on some spreadsheet somewhere. I don't think you lads are giving IBM enough credit for ability to reinvent and readapt. I mean... This is a business that is far older than any of us and has reinvented itself many, many times. I knew some folks at Red Hat and at IBM at the time that, you know, they were making this merger. And the idea was always for, you know, Red Hat to kind of bring in new blood and new ideas and and reinvigorate. It was a possible new direction for IBM. Now, I mean, it's certainly not too late for IBM to ignore their own initiative there and, you know, kind of strangle themselves on the vine anyway. But I certainly think it's too early to rule them out. Do you not worry that with Whitehurst leaving, that didn't kind of sort of go along with what everybody was thinking was the way that it was going to go, where he might be stepping into an IBM leadership role, but he then just went, nah, I'm out of here. Yeah, I I did think that was a bad sign. Um, I firmly expected Whitehurst to end up in the CEO role for IBM, uh, a lot of people expected that and were you know, surprised when it didn't happen. I don't think it's a great sign, but I just think it's still way too early to be calling for the death of IBM. You're too optimistic. <laughs> I don't like him, Joe. Have you not heard this show? <laughs> Who says I'm optimistic? I mean, I'm not necessarily saying, oh, it would be we, we need IBM and they should absolutely stay around. I'm saying like, you know, this is an ancient corporate dinosaur that has lumbered along and reinvented itself as necessary. It's been in the business of being in business and making a ton of money for a very long time. And I don't think it's soon enough to count them out yet. Now, as to whether, you know, oh, it's a great thing for everybody that IBM is still around and doing all these things. We haven't addressed that question. (laughs) I'm not an optimist. I'm a cynic and a realist. Okay. This episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. 
That's cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux. Let's do a quick KDE corner before we get out of here. The first one, the November app update. Yeah, there is a KDE app update. There's a new scanning application that's out as well, based on QT Quick, so a bit easier to maintain. And I guess, I don't know, is that going to make it easier for the phone? Uh, I don't know whether you're going to be scanning many PDFs off your scanner with a phone, but hey... And uh, another application that's new is the Subtitle Composer, which is kind of cool. If you have all those questionably obtained video files that you need to translate into other languages. No, files that you've ripped from your DVD collection. Oh, that's it, yeah. And uh, you want to give them to your Hungarian granny um, with no subtitles. But that's quite cool. It's quite a cool piece of software. And along with the other new software that's out is also Calendar. And I thought this was version 1 when I saw it first. But it's version 0.1.0. So, uh, yeah, really, really upping the version numbers there. But there are packages for OBS on OpenSUSE, Fedora Copper packages, Arch, AUR, and Neon's got it in the unstable package. So give it a try if you want to try that out as well, I would say. And Nico's got some new videos then. He does, yeah. Um, he's got one of the accent folders. Now, the thing I didn't realize I was going to do was actually change the whole shading of uh, directory folders, which is, you know, not a massive thing. But I guess if you're looking for an overall theme, it's a very simple way to theme your desktop with having to do exactly zero graphical skills. Can I get that in abstract and soft? <laughs> And he also did one about the KDE bugs as well. He did, yeah. Uh, so it's finally got a facelift. It was never the nicest thing to go and hit first as a user where, you know, the last episode we had the top 25 things you should do. Login bugs is really important. It's an easy thing for people to do, but not when the bug tracker is really painful and very old school looking to log into. So that has got a refresh. It's not fully finished. They're going to do more things to make it easier for people and, you know, quicker one-shot bugs, but it's definitely a start and it looks so much nicer. Is it better at least than the Debian one where you're supposed to run like the command line tool to start the bug report and, you know, they don't want to pay attention to it if you didn't? Yes, it really wouldn't be hard. (laughs) And also Polkit explained. Yeah, it's quite an interesting thing. So obviously Polkit, for people who don't know, it's a bit like sudo for your desktop. So it's getting root level permissions to do a thing, simple task, and then how it integrates with all the software and the GUI, but using more modern ways of doing things. I didn't know anything about it because there's far too much low level GUI stuff that I don't know. But it's quite interesting to, to read through, see how it all ties together and the disturbing amount of things that the new locale uh, KCM for the control panel had to go through to just generate uh, locales and change your settings for your keyboards, etc. things like that. So worth a look if you're interested. Will that make it easier to schedule appointments for people in different time zones? Well, Katie Pym also had an update. <laughs> so the September and October updates, maybe they would if you guys would use proper software and not XFCE and whatever you use, Joe, I don't know. Hey, hey yeah, don't, don't blame that XFCE stuff on me. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, tell us about Pym. Lots of updates to Pym. I think people as a, as a task at home should read them themselves. But just I think it's good to know that all these parts of the system are, are getting maintained it's not none of these things are kind of rusting away even though there's new packages coming out they're still working on things that you know help you get your job done during the day so happy days for me right well we better get out of here then we'll be back next week when we'll be talking about all sorts of stuff and hopefully jim will be sticking around thanks for turning up jim even <laughs> if it was eventually glad to be here so until then i've been john i've been phenom i've been jim and i've been will see you later